Lower the boom. Lower the boom. <laughs> I'm very far away from my laptop. Yeah. Which is why my head looks so tiny. <laughs> I th- that's just your, I think that's just your brand. Hey, now. <laughs> of course, my brand is like my, my face is, I think, completely covered by this microphone that I have in front of me. Mm, you can't see me. That is your brand. Yeah. yeah. Um, at least for, just for this podcast. But you've got a little boom there on your on your headset. You're wearing one of the air traffic control style things or call center style microphones. Yeah, call center. That's my, you know, that's my brand. <laughs> Hello, may I help you? <laughs> yeah, well, you are a helpful person, so it doesn't, it's not oh, off brand. Nice. It's not off brand. I appreciate that sentiment. I do try to be helpful. It's nice to know that every once in a while I actually succeed. Have you, seen, like. have you seen these videos of people who call intentionally call scammers and go through the whole process? Have you seen these? So this is sort of a way to fight back against the scam to engage with the, the Nigerian prince well, who's trying I, to get you to open the bank account? Or? I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if it's that. It, it, it's as much to have a successful Twitch or YouTube channel, I think, as it is to... I'm not sure how much fighting back it actually does, but oh look, yeah. I, I'm you know I'm with uh, I'm with St. Thomas and other fathers, uh, church fathers on this. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know things can have multiple uh, causes and purposes, right? And uh, no sense not enjoying the full panoply of things you can do. I am both creating a popular Twitch channel and throwing a wrench into the spokes of some do batter. Um, and if that makes me an oblique do-gooder, uh, I, so much the better, I suppose. I think, should we take this thing on Twitch? Should we have a Twitch sure, channel? Let's do, oh my gosh, people would love to see how the sausage gets <laughs> made. I'm quite sure of it. I had the idea over the summer. This is when we weren't recording. I was thinking, I, I got to start talking to people again. Um, mm. ide- ideally, my friend Joe. But you Please know, tell me you did not reach out to, the, to just talk to people on Twitch. <laughs> no, no, I didn't. Uh, but... You know, I'm, I was totally. Uh, I'll, I'll get back to the scammer in a minute. Mm. Let's let's put a pin in that, as the uh, biz, business people say. Let's put that in the parking I'm lot. I'm happy to put a pin in the scammer. Let's <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> um, but but I I considered like so I was totally enamored with this new Microsoft Flight Simulator thing. Um, I've I've always been kind of a fan of flight sims, but I never I don't really game on my computer these days. Right. I, you know, I just. Right. Uh, I've had Explain and a few of the other ones because I'm I'm fascinated by the idea of flight and especially like long flights. You know, like like just the the operations of it, the audacity of like long distance travel. There's just something about it, which so I've never been into like fighter jets and and like flying fast kind of stuff is not as interesting to me as the exploration part of it. Yeah. Um, so I thought, how about a Twitch channel where I stream flying like a Cessna, right in like two or three hour stretches? So it's not gonna I'm not gonna be one of these eight hour streamers you know so it won't be a regular stream but like a two-hour thing where for each segment so i fly starting here in athens around the world around the world joe so i gotta find a way to get get across the Bering strait you know i gotta get all the way over all the way around but in the but in these three-hour chunks in these two or three-hour chunks maybe a little bit longer if there's a you know if if there's a, a reason but with like real weather and all that and and for each little segment i get a different co-pilot Someone who Ooh. hops aboard and, and we and we chat. Maybe, maybe someone who is familiar with the area over which we're flying. Wow, I thought, I thought that would well, be a lot kind of fun. Amazing! It, not only would it be fun, I think people would watch and they, like. It. I'm not so sure. <laughs> uh, they they like, might. I think I. So this is a circum uh, 
circumglobe, a circumnavigation of the globe. That's right. Phenomenon. That's so right. What's the total number of hours do you think that would take? Uh, flying at the at the speed of a Cessna. Oh, jeez. It, it at least uh, I don't know, at least ten or eleven hours. <laughs> 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 um, I try to give least. my best like five year old kid answer to that. Like when I'm thinking yeah. of a, when I'm thinking of a lot, it's got to be more than ten. More than yeah, it's got to be more it than could, ten. It could even be, it could even be more than twenty. Yeah, I worry though that the conversation would devolve into um, discussions of like legal theory over time, and eventually it would just be a legal theory podcast where we happen to be like flying. But in a Cessna, yeah, where yeah. I have where I have this other thing that I'm doing on the side. Um, well, especially if I had to be if I if I were your um, if I were your guest. Anytime you couldn't find a better guest, um, <laughs> then it would definitely devolve into legal theory. That, that would be sad. Well, you know, I, th- I think to make the most of you as a guest in a show like that, you'd have to put on like virtual reality goggles or something where like I could dip the wings and mess with you a little bit to make you a little bit sick. Yes. Yeah. We want to add haptics to that for sure. Because <laughs> um, you would push I back. I was actually in, I was in a, uh, when, I, when I was uh, in my 20s, a friend of mine at the time. Uh, a guy I went to high school with actually uh, the second half of high school. Anyway, he uh, was very much into piloting and uh, was, had learned to fly. And so he wanted to take me up in this little two-seater aircraft. And I said yes, because I'd never done it before um, and therefore lacked the information that would have conveyed to me how important it was for me to say no. <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> I I did go. And it really is like getting hurled through the air uh Strapped on the back of a, a lawnmower, the, a, a little two-seater plane, and it. The only reason that I wasn't just completely paralyzed with fear uh, is because I was too stupid. I was, you know, I was like, "Oh, there's parts of this that are new," and of right. course, things are beautiful. There's no denying. Oh that. yeah, it's amazing. I mean, the sky's beautiful. The terrain is beautiful, and. But but it was it was as we were ending as the trip was ending and he's landing the plane and, and it's suddenly starting to occur to me that you know this this really was completely bonkers <laughs> for me to do like if anything had happened to him I would have been completely unable to do anything other than die, huh. um, which seems like you know I kind of have that handled already I don't need <laughs> to have him help me set up a more elaborate version of that fate, uh, yeah. You need but to be able to was, contact the air traffic control. Yeah, and I don't know that I would have known the first thing about that. Yeah. I mean, I su- I'm sure a radio is involved somehow, but beyond <laughs> so that... So long as I, you can talk I, to people, they could talk you through it. You can land, Joe. Th- you you could be right. Um, I think the fear, uh, the, the the necessity of avoiding death would probably take over and help um, if I had someone to walk me through the steps or whatever. But yeah, that was, that was quite a thing. I've I never done it since. I yeah. don't really have any desire to. Uh, go up in a two seater for re- for real for realsies. Um, How about a four seater? Four seater, six seater. How many? Is, is there a minimum number of seats that you are aware is of? There, uh, surely there is, and I don't know how many seats, how many plane seats it takes to turn that grain of sand into a heap. <laughs> um, but um, more than two. That's all. More than two. Less than two hundred. Somewhere between there. Yeah, here's here's the real thing. I don't. I feel most comfortable when the person flying the plane is seated in a fundamentally different kind of seat and seating area than mm. everyone else in the plane. Now, this is interesting to me uh, because, you know, 
you know, this this relates. I think did we talk about this last week? How um, you know, this is the 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 nature of expertise these days, right? Where a, a lot of people fundamentally like don't trust expertise in science and et cetera. You, I mean, this is I'm, we're not going to break new ground on this, um, but there's something about pilots. Like you just touched on it, where it's like you don't want control, and you're normally a person who wants control in your life, Joe. Like you're not, you hey. don't even want to be aware that there's somebody who is exercising control. Like you want to have the background awareness that there's somebody up there exercising control and that they're a trained professional, but you don't want to be aware of their decisions. Like you don't want to see them making decisions. Well, I, I don't see how knowing them could help me. Like, I don't see how, how my seeing their decision-making would help make my life better. We're talking about a technology that's essentially a form of magic as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you th- people say words at me that talk that make me think that you know wind going over this curved thing while the other part of the wind is going over this flat thing makes the thing float okay i mean whatever did you see um, i retweeted an article about that recently about how like there's still a lot of uncertainty as to what lift really is like where does it really come from like how does mm. the how, not not lift in general but like on the wing like why do airplanes fly is, is still kind of a hotly debated topic uh, that is, uh, I didn't see that. Um, I'm, I'm. It's, it's uh, not surprising. It's also not particularly worrying. I, in the, <laughs> you know, the patent law person in me, patent law in the United States, worldwide actually, but in particularly in the United States, is very committed to the idea that what matters is whether something works, not whether we know how or why it works. So patent law just wants you to tell me here's the thing that gets the job done. You don't need a theory of the mechanism of action. I mean, that'd be nice if you had it. Um, but uh, but does it work or not, right? Mm. And so I'm in the plane. It's definitely flying. Like, it's moving me from point A to point B. People who are in charge of it seem to know what they're doing. Um, okay. I don't know how... What does pro- it mean to know what you're doing? If, what does it mean to know what you're doing if you don't know why something works? And, and, and look, I, I'm asking the question. I, I kind of appreciate that we could peel back the layers of the onion about what it means to say that why something works. Like to give an answer about why is really to create a whole bunch of other questions, but, but like yeah, so 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 to the original yeah, question, the why and the how, like yeah. it's yeah, it is, and and for um, I mean, it, I don't need to tell the models person that like there's some things you segment and you are willing to, you know, black box a much bigger portion of the total activity, um, and other things that, like I'm much more interested in thinking about how and why a particular teaching method works. Right, because that's a thing I have to try to do. Um, uh, flying a plane, no thanks. I mean, we could get a philosopher on here and get much deeper into this question of what an explanation really is. I mean, in some that's sense, true. it's like it, it's a it's a story that you have some confidence in as explaining some observations, where the story is something you have more trust in than the than the story that you tell without that story. You know, I'm talking about stories instead of models. So, if your story right. of airplanes flying involves magic. And then you get an explanation in terms of air and moving over the wing, and then there are these competing explanations. Uh, uh, it's kind of ironic in a way that you have more trust in that story, maybe just because it's more basic. Because the, the the stories that we think of as scientific are ones involving atoms and molecules and smaller things that aren't part of, part of everyday experience. But, but somehow they're right. more convincing, right? Uh, I suppose they could be. I mean, it, uh, part of it is surely what you can attach to your everyday experience. So if you are talking about 
Um, let's say you're trying to learn about electric charge and how all that works and the stories about things smaller than you can see. And, you know, maybe you, maybe it would help you to do the Millikan oil drop experiment with charged plates and um, things like that. So you could have an experience that you could relate to this, uh, the story that connects these other observations people have had um, and participate in a degree, in enough of a degree to help make it more concrete than than less, uh, if that's something you really want to retain or feel like you've got some hold on. It's it's interesting because I mean the minute you stick your hand out of the window of a moving car, the the fact of lift is 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 evident. Like oh yeah, there's no way this is you know if the, if the wing is anything like this, of course it's going to fly. Like you just you just get that um, because you know the the air forces the hand up at a certain angle and forces it down, and you can just see it. It's like it's part of your experience. Yeah, you have to hold it right. You have to hold your hand correctly. But yeah, I suppose that's right. Right. Um, but it's interesting, though, because I, I am, what I've recognized about myself, I think, maybe I've always known this, but maybe recently is like, I do, I'm, I'm kind of a fearful person. Like I have fears and, 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 and maybe it's connected to imagination. You know, um, I like to imagine things uh, and, and, and maybe a near, a near enemy of imagination is fear. And, mm. um, and, and so, like, as a kid, I was always, like, really attracted to flying. Like, I love flying in jets and traveling. And part of that is the, mm. this kind of whole logistics systems thing that we have talked about before. Part of it is just, like, I think the fear of it. Like, the, just the possibilities. But but I was really afraid at the same time. Uh, and and I know what kind of quelled my fear over time is is, you know, maybe doing flight simulators. But also knowing what all the noises are, like knowing that when the flaps come down, that's why it feels rough all of a sudden, or that's why this noise mm. makes this noise, or this like this boom is just the landing gear like coming down and locking in place. Like the more right. about that. And, and so for me, unlike you, so this is to, to bring it back, I think, like on those flights, like I don't, I don't remember exactly when this was, but when you can actually use the headphones to tap into the ATC communications mm. and, and you can hear the pilots and you can hear them talking about things like light chop or moderate chop. And you can hear how unconcerned they are, say, about turbulence. Like, all of a sudden, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, like, not fearful anymore. Like, in other words, oh, nice. I, I don't necessarily want to fly the plane myself. That wouldn't make me feel better because I, I probably I might not do a good job of that, Joe, to be frank with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, like, knowing the ways in which, they're ju- in which their judgment is being exercised and what is not worrying to them and... And just knowing that things are perceived, like, all, like to me, that's reassuring. So I don't want to yes. be, I, I would rather be reassured and be included in the cockpit, even though I don't want control. I don't know where they, but that doesn't sound like what you had in mind, though. Well, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I get, it sounds to me like your worry level was a little higher, actually. Hmm. And therefore, engaging with it in that more active and um, that more active and detailed way helped address that higher level of worry. Um, I'm, but, but I've already, yeah. I, I've sort of already abandoned hope like that. <laughs> so I'm fine. I don't, you know, I don't need to hear the details with the tower. That's, you know, Gandalf is either waving his stick over there or not. And I, that's fine. But I'm I never had like a white knuckle kind of like, I was never fearful in that way, but like, and, and maybe it's that I didn't recognize that the anxiety that I felt was anxiety or that it was something that a lot of people shared. It seems like everybody else was just fine with this. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, we're in this, you know, we're flying at 30,000 feet and, and we don't know what's going on in 
those doors up there. Like, I, I was never like focused on it. Like, you know, I, I don't, hmm. I, I don't think I was unusually afraid, but like there was fear there. And I'm like, oh my God, why am I afraid? That's not rational. And I was like upset by that in a way. Like, why am oh. I afraid about this? Um, and so, uh, I don't know. It, it's not that, um, that hearing that or understanding what these noises were and, and like it, that it, it, that it, it quelled some overriding fear because I also wanted to hear those things because I thought they were like really cool. Like it was exciting. Mm. Like I want to hear, like I want to tap into the ATC. Like these days I still, you know, I would like to hear the ATC the whole flight. I would prefer that. Oh my. Just cause it's really? fun. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, on YouTube, mm. I, I listen to some of these ATC things every now and then. I think it's really, I just love how these systems work, how, you know, this is you and I talked in a long time ago on the show about how uh, how amazing it was that in the pre-computer age, people had these like physical systems of like card catalogs and and filing cabinets and and with with physical objects, we achieved a kind of like social computing and and so to, yeah. see, you know, it's a, in a way like ATC communications are uh, almost like a throwback to a a system of human coordination here with the mm. human human voice and right. I, I just find Sign- it really fascinating. Signaling and, and creating information flows that coordinate yeah. this very complex set of interconnected behaviors, which all have to go according to the choreographed plan um, to, to, you know, to, to at least a decent approximation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and that's what help safely brings about the objective. Now, maybe maybe there's quite, it's quite beautiful in its way, I may- suppose. Maybe there's something to... To this idea of wanting to be an insider that I actually think it's not a great I think I think one of the problems with society today is too many people want to be insiders like we all want to find out like you know, we all watch polit- like a lot of people watch political reporting to find out how what people are saying is playing with everybody else but like everybody's watching mm. this stuff like and so it's a you know this is a, a snake eating its like own the tail sports fan yeah and it's a, a sports fanization of yeah um, you know po- po- politics as a hobby activity right but when I'm listening to the air traffic control communications and it says, you know, my flight number and, and the and the uh, the center is saying, you know, turn left heading, you know, 250. And all of a sudden we make a left turn. I'm like, huh, I knew that. I knew that before all the, <laughs> before all the rest of the rubes on this flight, like knew we were turning. Like I, I figured and then they say, you know, watch out like light chop ahead. I'm like, well, I better get ready for it. It's going to start to be, get a little bumpy. That's right. Got to look out for that chop. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it's cool. And I so I've been watching a lot of videos recently on um speaking of fear on uh climbing K2. Are you familiar with K2, Ooh. the mountain? I've heard of it. Mm. I've not climbed it. I've not watched anyone else climb it. Well, I've been following along cuz there are now six, I think there are six expeditions which are hoping to climb it this winter. It's never been climbed in winter before. Mm. And I think that at the base camp, which is at 6,000 meters or something, it's like, you know, it's about zero degrees right now. Um, okay. But it, um, anyway, it's a rough, it's a rough place. And I think climbing in winter is, is going to be really rough, but it mm. is absolutely, it's a stunning mountain. It is like a mountain's mountain. It looks like it is the perfect mountain. If you look at this thing. When mountains dream, this is the mountain they dream of. Yeah. And they may be nightmares to be clear. Mm. But but it is right. it, it is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And so in the in the nineties, back when I was doing a little bit of mountaineering, I mean, uh nothing like this. Uh not at all. But you know, in in the Pacific Northwest, like I remember going to the library and checking out books on the Himalayan expeditions of the seventies and eighties. And I think it was Galen Rowell's book about 
the first American ascent of K2. I think it's called In the Throne of the Mountain Gods or something like this. And Galen Wright had all these amazing photographs of the glaciers and the peak. And and I just couldn't, like it was just a, a figment of the imagination. I actually wanted to try to trek to K2 base camp. I, you know, it didn't harbor desires of climbing because it's the kind of thing where like for every person who, for every four people who summit, like one person dies, it fluctuates between like four and six. So it's not anything that I was willing to actually risk. Um, that's, mm. a, that's a little too risky for me. Uh, but going to seeing this thing in person, going to Concordia, this place where you can see, I don't know, is it four? I don't know, four or five of the world's 8,000 meter peaks all in one place. Um, mm. Just absolutely stunning. So so I would love to go. But, but this is another... Um, example like what drives people to want to do this and makes other people not want to do it um i've been thinking a lot about that and 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 these days one of the reasons is because you can actually go on youtube now and you can watch videos of people climbing the route which was totally not accessible to me in the 90s this was a this is like being in the cockpit in a way so people who are climbing have a gopro on their helmet or something and you're able to see the activity of actually being in that place but not have any of the physical peril Right, being in that place, and, and if you've done any climbing, you like recognize. Oh, I see. This is like kind of like what I did here, but this is like sustained, and it's at seven thousand meters, and this is amazing. And you can see all these fixed lines. So, you know, there there are a couple of of key spots, maybe a few key spots on the route that you, I've read about, and then I was able to see them being climbed, and it was really amazing. I, this mm. uh, there's houses chimney, which is like a, a five six rock climb way up, and and it, people are doing it in crampons and boots, and it's like. That's, it's amazing, but you can actually see it and you see this tangle of ropes that have been left there that people are using as fixed ropes. And, and then there's the black pyramid. And then finally up above camp four, you see the, the huge Serac, which is a big, basically tower of ice, um, which, um, is the last, um, kind of objective hazard on the route other than high winds on the, on the summit Ridge. And it is like a gleaming crystal wall, at mm. least at sometimes at sometimes all that there's no like snow covering it. It's like, it looks like just this huge smooth ice cube which hangs above the route and you have to kind of get around and it's above this couloir to, called the bottleneck and so anyway, seeing all these things in person like made it real in a way that it was always a figment of dreams in, in the 90s for me and i don't know it kind of posed this question again about like because i want to do it right i really i really want it I, I want to be there like why do i want to be there like wh- why uh why do I, I know I would be terribly afraid. I know that I would probably get sick and, and die. I know, I know that like it would be suffering. Um, but there's something, you know, even with the mountaineering trips that I've done and, and stuff like I want to kind of, I always thought of it in the nineties as kind of stretching the rubber band. Like you intentionally stretch the rubber band, even though you know, it's going to snap back. But the way to commit yourself to the thing is to just stretch it. Don't think about it. Just stretch it and let it snap. Mm. Um, anyway, I don't know. I've been. This has been on my in my thoughts a lot lately, and, and there's something about the the physical brute nature of being in the mountains. Um, great book by Robert McFarlane, Mountains of the Mind, about the history of of kind of more English but Western views of of mountains and wilderness. Um, so, do you think that watching the YouTube videos is um, is it? It sounds like it's not uh, sleeking. A thirst or or helping you experience some sort of catharsis but is rather uh 
like the water just beneath Tantalus's chin <laughs> um, is sort of tempting you and tempting you. Um, do I no, have that I right? Yeah, I mean, it, it it activates a certain kind of memory, desirous memory. And and again, like I first of all, I wouldn't be able to do it, although I'm at the age where one still could do it and people do do it. Um, hmm. But um, but I don't have the skills or the money, and I wouldn't want to ha- hire a bunch of porters and be led like a tourist up one of these mountains. Um, so I don't really mm. have the desire to climb in the Himalaya. Um, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. It sounds like what you're saying is that I could have a, a team of people carry me up there like a pasha. They wouldn't be able to carry you, but they could carry, oh, they a, could carry your stuff. It's a great point. Yeah. Um, you got to yeah. haul yourself up. I mean, you can haul yourself up the fixed lines. So the fixed lines, you know, so you have a couple of people, a few people go up and they, they attach ropes with anchors to the mountain. And your job is just to kind of keep going up and you and you use this little device on the ropes that you kind of keep pushing up as you ascend so that if you fall, so, it catches you. So here's a question. Yeah. Could someone take a helicopter and dangle me out of the helicopter so that I could just touch down and put my feet on the top of the of the mountain and you sort of maybe then the clip we could declip and I could stand there. Would I don't that work. I don't think there's a helicopter in the world that can get that high. Really? Yeah. For real. I think the highest I don't I for some reason in the back of my mind I think there was some helicopter rescue at Camp 4 which is how high is Camp 4? So over 7000 meters uh well over 7000 meters. I don't remember. But um once you get high on these Himalayan peaks there's no chance of a helicopter rescue. Seriously, yeah. the air is just too thin for a helicopter yeah. to function. Yeah. Wow. And, and, and so, it may well be that in, that in open air, maybe some, I don't know what the altitude record for a helicopter is. Maybe it's that high, but you certainly can't get one this close to the slopes and maneuver it with any kind of accuracy um, that high. And maybe you can't even go that high. I don't know. Because it, so you think the maneuverability would also be affected. Even yeah. if it could fly in the abstract, it you might, you wouldn't want to get that close to it something as uh, firm as a mountain <laughs> in, in, in the helicopter. Yeah, and, I, and again, this is, I, I'm not an expert on these things, as you know, Joe. I'm not, I don't hold myself out to be a helicopter expert, okay. but, I, but I do know so, that, yeah. So as an alternative, um, how about uh, if I could get a Harrier jet? Will that, mm. could I do that? I don't, I bet a Harrier will not work that. I bet it can't land vertically that high. That would be my guess. Hmm. I mean, you could wow, parachute. I've... You could you could probably parachute like that. You know the guy who did who did the Red Bull stunt where he went way up in a in a I think it was a hot air balloon. Mm, went as super high as it could go. Yeah, what was that guy's name? You remember this one? It and was on. He, it was on. I do vaguely yeah. remember this. And then yeah, so I just need one of those suits, like um, in the Kelvin timeline, uh, in uh, Star Trek when. Uh, they jump out of the ship de- and are going down to the planet, and they've got these special sort of jumpsuits. Yeah, with the head-up display inside the helmet and all that. I just need that. Mm-hmm. And then I could Th- just land right on the top. Yep, you could do that. I mean, I just think you're very focused on the going up from the ground model <laughs> of this, and I just there are just other ways of getting to the top. So if being at the top is a place to be, I think you need to really think about all the alternatives. Yeah, this is the thing. I just don't, um, I, I think people think of, of mountain climbing 
as one of those things that that is that attracts like thrill sport kind of people, like people who mm. otherwise might parachute or hang glide or bungee jump or and that's like I'm not that person. That's never attract been attractive to me. So I actually don't care as much about standing on the summit as about the act of climbing, exploring yeah, the terrain. Okay. Right. Um, Neat. Maybe that keeps me alive. Could, maybe if I, if I were not that kind of person, I probably would have thrown myself at all kinds of stuff. But again, I'm, I'm like, I think I'm an inherently fearful person, maybe overly hmm. fearful. That is not how I would uh, have ever described you in the, uh, not having you heard, not having heard you say it of yourself. I would never have been. Are, that are you a fearful person? Um, I, I don't think of myself as one, although surely I am. Um, I, in terms, there are lots of things I wouldn't do, and the reason I wouldn't do them is out of fear. Yeah, um, but you kind of draw the line of... well before, like, like you don't put yourself to that. I, 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 I've experienced you as someone who will say, "I have no interest in that," or "I'm not, I'm not interested." And you, like, you have a very firm sense of like what you want to do and don't want to do. So the question of want and don't want seemed to me to precede any question of whether you would be afraid to do something because you wouldn't have wanted to do it in the first place. So fear doesn't come up. Yeah, maybe. Uh, like I, uh, well, first of all, I thank you for recognizing that I'm a real door closer. We're all door closers. I'm all about the no, right? You want to close that door and close that window, and no, you say yes. Uh, it's just you. You have a very firm set of convictions about about what is a yes to you and what's a no to you. Like, you, and, and maybe that's just a matter of knowing yourself quite well. Hmm. Um, so I, I don't mean to put this in a negative way. It's just like, you know, I can ask you to do stuff. You say, no, I'm not interested in that. Like you have a very clear sense of, of whether you're interested in something. Yeah, I, that's a, that's fair. Um, I do try to, as I did a few years ago with the blue cheese odyssey of discovery. Um, tr- when I, when I've been <laughs> giving one answer for a long time, I do try to ask, well, look, it, could it be that that's based on outdated information? And so it might not be true anymore. It might have been true at some point in the past that I had a blue cheese experience which was negative and therefore didn't want to do that again. Now, th- to be clear, this is not a euphemism for some greater sense of exploration in the world. This is we're talking about actual blue cheese. Yes, I was. I was. I was yeah. actually. I actually committed yep. to a, a an odyssey of tasting lots of different blue cheeses, all of which I loved. Right. I recall that, this very well. Yeah. Yeah, and that was because I had been saying no, and then I realized, oh my gosh, but that could be based on very outdated information. So that's not appropriate. You have to get new information, and the only way to get new the new information is have that new experience, and it turned out I thought it was delicious. So there was an instance where I did have a, an idea, a firm idea about what I would enjoy, and it was dead wrong, and I'm glad that I'm open to doing those reevaluations uh, when that makes sense to me. I, I think we talked about this on the show before because I, I had the same experience with olives when I was after my clerkship and there was a lunch place which had these wonderful sandwiches that I would get um, at Judy's European Bakery in New Haven. Just nice. wonderful, wonderful sandwiches. And as, especially on Friday, I think it was sandwich day, it's when they would have these like special sandwiches that they would make, which always kind of rotated and they would always have a vegetarian one. So it was always like, yes, I, I'm going to do that. And they'd always mm. include these olives with it, like two okay. olives. And for a long time, I was like throwing these away because I, I thought I did not like olives. And at some mm. point I said, I think I said this on the show before, but it's been a long time, as you know, Joe. Um, yes. This is absurd. Like whoever makes a sandwich knows what the hell they're doing with food. 
like I should probably also have the olives. And so, so I began to eat the olives and committed to not immediately turning to whether I thought I liked them or disliked them. So like and dislike are not relevant. What's relevant is like, what are the flavors I'm tasting as I eat these olives? And I started to notice the differences among flavors and things like that. And eventually I started to crave them. And mm. now, now I love olives. Now this is, so what's so, it's so funny and interesting to think about this. So for me, the, in the blue cheese odyssey, uh, <laughs> it was very much about what I liked and didn't like. Uh, my, my point was simply that I, I no longer had, I, I was no longer confident that my earlier experience was relevant mm-hmm. to whether I would actually like it. So right. now if I had tried it and, and maybe I'd tried th- two or three or four and they, and I, they all tasted bad to me, I would have been like, okay, I actually was still like, that was actually still correct. Right. I wouldn't have kept eating. No, I need to try the 18th because just because the first 17 made me want to curl up and die. Um, the, the next one might be great. Like, <laughs> nah. Well, I, I wasn't suffering. That. I wasn't like, it's not like I had a, I wasn't revolted by olives. It was just like, you know, oh, okay. it, it was not, inter- I don't know. It just didn't taste, uh, I didn't think they tasted great. And at some point I, 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 I figure, um, you know, this is an immediate reaction. This is kind of a, I don't know, hedonic reaction. It's something, it's some, some immediate reaction that I'm having to these things. And maybe right. I just need to live with these things for longer because tastes can be shaped as, you know, I, I've learned this somehow and yeah. I could probably learn something else. Now with blue cheese, like I'm not, I don't seek out a blue cheese because I have that experience when I eat them, you know, when you breathe out through your nose after you've eaten them and you, it, it's like, uh, not formaldehyde. What is it like? Uh, um, what's that other, um, what am I thinking of here, Joe? I don't know. Not turpentine. I'm, some I'm kinda, fascinated. I hope some you... kind of, it's some kind of like cleaning agent kind of thing. Hmm. When I breathe out, some kind of alcohol related something. So it's it's not oh. super pleasant. Um, I was also someone who always tasted um, soap when I eat cilantro. Did you taste soap when you eat cilantro? Just Definitely. It, yeah. So that's a that's a genetic thing apparently. Mm. And so when I heard that, I'm like, well, I'm I'm like constitutionally unable to eat cilantro because this tastes like soap. So I wouldn't have it on my burrito back when they first started putting cilantro on burritos when I was in yeah. grad school. I'm not saying that's when they first did it, but that's when they first did it around me. Okay. And I've learned to like cilantro. It still tastes soapy, but yeah, throw hmm. some cilantro on there. It's fine. It's fine. Interesting. It's fine. And so, so I, no. I did not see the eating of olives as a particular kind of sacrifice or, an, or, or, or some kind of discipline or anything like that. It's just like this could be a great pleasure in life, like coffee, which I had only recently before that kind of taken up. This could be a great mm. pleasure in life that I'm forgoing because I have this immediate reaction. I'm just kind of ruling it out. Yeah. Don't rule it out. Yeah, and even if even if at some prior point you tried it and didn't like it, maybe it would be different today. That's right. So you could you could try even if you'd had olives 10 years before and didn't particularly care for them, you might care for them now. So did you find out in the Blue Cheese Odyssey? I wish I I wish I thought of Olive Odyssey. I didn't. Mm. So I, it's it's too late. It's been claimed. You've got it. It's Blue Cheese Odyssey. That's Joe's thing. <laughs> <laughs> but um, did you, did you, because uh, again, I think this is part of your, the, the way you approach things. You probably did eat stuff and say, nope, not for me. And you ate other blue cheeses and you said, yes, that's for me. Yes, please. So so at the end of this, did you have like a list of like 15 blue cheeses that that were uh, uh, yes, please, more of that, and five or six or seven that were uh, don't, don't even get those in the same room with me? 
No, I well, look, I never. Um, it, it's a testament to how few I tried that I never encountered one that I thought, okay, no. Oh, really? Like I, I should have gone and eaten more because I, all the, all the ones I had. Now I will say, um, there are some blue cheeses of which I'm aware, and I did not try them mm-hmm. um, because they really do look like some sort of. You know, cave wall had a car accident. I mean, it's just, it's just very juicy. Right. Very. Mm. So you're not going to try that, that Italian I, cheese, which was illegal for a long time because it had basically things living in it. Mm. Um, so yeah, there are some that I didn't try, mm-hmm. um, but but the ones that I tried, I, I really enjoyed, and I don't have a list. I, although I do have a singular, um, what is it? Humboldt Fog is that yeah. the name of the? I know that one. You, that that one is really really good. That's Very e- delicious. Yeah. I think it's also a marijuana strain. Oh, nice. No, I don't. Um, I don't know. Probably is. It's got to be, right? Doesn't it sound like one? It really does, actually. Yeah. Uh, that Humboldt County in California is quite a hotbed of uh, of cannabis, cheese, and weed. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, or weed. Sure, surely, there's got to be a cheese a store called Cheese and Weed in Humboldt County somewhere. Or, or just Weez, or Weezer. <laughs> It's sort of That's weird that you redefined. you reached yeah you reached for the um, portmanteau before I did. That's an unusual thing. Yeah. Huh. Uh, anywho, uh, yeah. So, have a so new experience. Yeah, but it's it's so it's interesting because you did not find any that you didn't like. So maybe what was going on is you were actually updating your tastes as I was having them. Yes, you may not have thought that's what you were doing when you started your Odyssey when you were the Odysseus of cheeses. Mm, you may, you may have thought, cheeses. yes, you may have thought, oh, you know, I haven't tried these in a long time. Maybe I was just wrong. Maybe there are some that I do like, so I just need to re-encounter these. Maybe what you were actually doing is what I was doing with olives, where you were non-judgmentally coming back into a space where you had had prior judgments and and uh, and you updated them because you had a new attitude about these things you were trying. Maybe, in fact, I was actually reprogramming my taste centers. That's right. That's That, that mm. could be. That could be. I'm intrigued, looping back to your thoughts about expertise and the pro- and our our current cultural moment where expertise seems to be uh, so strongly disliked by so many. Mm-hmm. Um, Is this the legal theory know, part of our legal theory podcast? Um, I don't know. Okay, we'll have to find out. Okay, we'll find um, out after we talk about it. But I wonder, like, first of all, I wonder. It does seem very. It does seem like a widespread and deep problem that we mm-hmm. are having genuinely as a in a cultural moment. Um, when I when I see things like that, there is a little part of me that goes, "Okay, is so is this really happening, or is this just a media narrative that is a fun and convenient way to loop together a number of assorted items, which do bear some." gentle resemblance to one another sort of like thinking in generations like the x generation or the boomer gen- like right the generation stuff is a little bit silly and it also captures a few interesting factoids and knits them together right um so is that what the uh the contempt for expertise like is it that kind of phenomenon or is it something you know deeper more important than that i sense it is deeper and more important than that uh, then the it's not just a sort of marketing gimmick for uh you know selling magazines or something um but it is worrying because of course we're we're in the business of uh among other things making 
a, a particular category of expert. Mm-hmm. Like that's our day job is helping people transform themselves into these experts called lawyers, um, which play a particularly important part, uh, as Tocqueville noted long ago, uh, in the, the sort of the American regime, as it were. Uh, and so it's, it is odd and, and interesting to be in a time when the, your day job is, uh, creating new entities who are held at such contempt. Hmm. So it's interesting because by, by, by yeah. many people, not all people, but, but by many people under many circumstances, the, the kind because of they're experts, the, the, there's a nihilistic component in our cultural currents right now that is that, that, that will reject something because it is embraced by experts. So that's not just skepticism of experts. It is a, uh, a kind of uh, participation in a war on expertise, which is often equated with elitism, right? A war on elites easily morphs into a, a war on expertise itself. And so yeah, that's, and it was this weird. Yeah. There was this weird moment, for example, just as such a great illustration of this, where it was in the in the in the de, um, the the debates about uh, Brexit and No Deal and all this stuff. And I think it was um, this guy was it, is it Michael Gove who uh, was in being interviewed in some BBC program or something like that. And at some point, you know, they're asking him, but wait a minute, don't, don't, don't these people express this concern about these trade agreements or this trade principle or whatever. And, and he just, at one point he just says, look, we've just had enough of experts. <laughs> and he said it at that very categorical level where expert was the right category. Right. Which is, which is like at one level bizarre. I yeah. mean, there are different kinds of people with different kinds of expertise. Any expertise worth having is more granular than the word expert. Right. Like you'd be an expert about a particular thing, as is he himself, the guy who is making the utterance. Like he has a base of experience and knowledge that is specialized to his life. I, I think and that, in, yeah, the, one critique, though, that people can make. So I, I consider myself oftentimes skeptical of expertise but but often guided by it um you know what whether my self understanding is accurate or not is like you know i'm i'm as prone to right. self delusion as anyone but um but but i think as someone who has done um a phd program like and a law program i think i've seen lots of f- cultivation of expert traits among lots of different kinds of people and norms within so called expert communities right and so right. I, I think one kind of objection people have is when um, a certain kind of uh, knowledge is developed through, um, I, I would say, non-controversial uh, mechanisms for the development of knowledge, whether that's like scientific method or um, kind of a review of lots of things which are based on that. In other words, they have a kind of non-controversial sources of truth. Um, but but when those... And, caveat right there are all the usual caveats i understand all the objections to what i just said people you know so so but um but but when that base of expertise is paired with certain other understandings people will sometimes object that why should we listen to this group of experts on this issue uh, even though they all agree on that issue because that issue doesn't come from the same base of expertise on which the things on which we trust them are based so I don't know. So, so a bunch of doctors who have a view about um, 
I'm trying to think what's a good example here. Um, you know, like a, a bunch of pilots who have views about uh, climate change, for example. You know, it's our expert opinion that, you know, because we fly a lot and we understand the impacts of flying a lot, that we have a certain view about what, you know, about about what we should do in with respect to airlines to help out with the climate change situation. Mm-hmm. And their their base of expertise is in, you know, actually piloting aircraft and and responding to emergencies and all kinds of other things. And they are familiar with flying as a social phenomenon, but that is a different kind of expertise about flying than the actual piloting of aircraft. And the understanding of piloting as and, and aircraft as a social phenomenon is one which is not theirs alone. Like a lot of other people might be familiar with that. So, um, you know, one example is the the debate over masks and um, and uh, and the interpretation of these vaccine results. And so, how, how do how does the public or people with various forms of expertise how do they engage with the coronavirus problem? Mm-hmm. Um, there is one strand of especially I think progressive thinking which is you know we should always defer to the scientists like the the science you know because they're being attacked by this nihilistic current of our culture, which I described earlier, right? These people who reject something merely because scientists embrace it, right? Right. And so there's this like, almost like, you know, Newtonian reaction that, you know, let's just listen to, I don't know whether it's Dr. Fauci or someone else, like what they say is what I'll do, right? Which doesn't necessarily involve a, a, a critical appraisal. Like, so these reports about these vaccines are out there. Anybody can read them. And you can look at them and some people are more equipped because of their training to interpret these results than others. Um, But if someone is a random, oh, I don't know, um, uh, uh, anesthesiologist somewhere, so they're a doctor, they have training and things, but they're not necessarily more equipped to read those studies, say, than I am, even though my my expertise is in a very different area. But they're scientific studies. They involve statistics and things like that. And, you know, the, the, the anesthesiologist at some random hospital is not a... Um, is not an epidemiologist, although they might might have had some classes in that, but it's not where their expertise is, um, and certainly not about not, not necessarily more of an expert than say some other social scientists, especially those who study social phenomenon and in um, say what the scarcity of vaccines will mean, how people will behave, and like that that's not contained in these studies. The same thing was true of masks, where right. there were kind of there's a lot of uncertainty about the efficacy of wearing masks and. But I think even more uncertainty about the kind of the social phenomenon of mask wearing, how to keep it from becoming a political issue, whether people would comply, how much you could ask of them. Um, so I, anyway, I, I have a very uh, mixed set of feelings or a set of mixed feelings. I'm not sure which, Joe. You can help me with that, too, uh, about, <laughs> uh, about um, the expertise question these days. It is, com- it is complicated because part of the um, p- part of the recognition of expertise is a recognition of one's own limitations. And so, for example, I think the skeptical questions are are natural and healthy when uh, one is confronted with a claim uh, rooted in expertise that one does not oneself possess. It is natural, I think, and healthy to have questions, to want to pose those questions. I therefore think it's entirely predictable uh, that when that expert to whom you pose those questions is unwilling to engage with you on those questions, that that can be a concern in and of itself. Like I think a a kind of a beneficial expertise is going to be happy to engage with non-experts questions that come from a place of good faith and an effort to try to understand better. But ultimately, 
the very fact that you recognize something as expertise means you're recognizing in a way that you're going to be unqualified in the end to make that final determination. That, that some, uh, some bit of deference is going to be unavoidable, like at some moment. It, it might be this far down the line or that far down the line, and you can ask these questions and those questions and maybe bring yourself up to speed. But there's going to be a point where the, the very difference between that person's expertise and your knowledge base is that they're going to get the call and you're not going to get the call, like to make the right. call. And that's, that's after do. you like recognize you're out on a branch where to get to the root, you've got to travel through a bunch of knowledge that you will just never be able to accumulate uh, in, in time to make a judgment yourself, right? That's the nature of expertise, yeah. right? But you have to recognize which branch you're on in order to do and, that. And you can try to, and you can try to um, hone your, um, by using your own reason and your own questioning ability and your own uh, um, sort of uh, scrutiny, you can try to develop some sense of, okay, well, what are the, what are the indicia of, in, in this kind of body of expertise, what tends to suggest that people are more or less reliable when it comes to making those determinations that they're making? Um, but so, so I agree with you that it's a real mixed bag of stuff, right? The, the desire to get answers to questions so that one better understands the scope and contours of, of the of the claim of expertise itself like what does this extend to and what does it not extend to what are the where where does it help me understand better the limits of the values questions that i have and the and the space for the fact uh, questions that i might have like right. these are all these things are happening um so it's interesting but you got to identify that that source because uh um you know I, early on when there were a bunch of scientists um at WHO and, and, and elsewhere who were saying, you know, um, we don't recommend masks. You got to figure out, is that because they made a judgment they were inefficacious? Or it turns out, I think a lot of them were making a, a, a social judgment about whether people would comply and the availability for healthcare workers and whether people could, you know, um, make their own masks. So, so there was a lot of kind of social science judgment, which was, and as to that, there were other people who were actually more expert um, who, who could Tell us something about that. So I, I pose this partly because I think lawyers and law professors are, we're, you know, we're kind of the, the business end of the knowledge stick, right? It's like when, when we have to apply to the knowledge something and inevitably people are going to disagree about this. And, and the law is where this is typically worked out, you know, where when people disagree, they turn to the law to resolve um, to resolve their disputes. So whether it's through legislation that has to be passed or through cases which have to be adjudicated or administrative determinations or um, uh, somehow, at, you know, at the business end of this of this knowledge dispute, you've got to come to some understanding and someone has to just do something. Lawyers need some training in how, how to deal with um, expertise, right? They, I think it's, it's important that we cultivate a certain amount of skepticism Mm-hmm. In order to press experts to figure out to figure out which branch of knowledge you're on, so that you can figure out, like, well, okay, what kind of expertise justifies getting here? Is is it expertise based on just this is what people have always done? So it's kind of more of a professional norm than it is um, uh, a professional knowledge. Um, is is this disputed? Um, because the other side of this, right, is well, there's the nihilism side, right, which is. An expert says it, so it's false. 
There's also, I think, a tendency among lawyers to take the skepticism in another, I think, pathological direction. And that is to say that anytime there's a dispute about something, it could go either way. You know, you see this on exams sometimes. Like, you know, a court could say mm. this, a court could say that. These yeah. are the worst kinds all, of exams. All too in often. In, yeah. Yeah. All, all too often, in fact. And so there's this, I, I think there's also a need to recognize that there's always an argument, right? There's always a fact which can cast some doubt on something. Like, so if, if your mission is to cast doubt on someone else's knowledge claim, uh, it's always possible to cite something. And so if our criterion of whether something is like up for grabs, up in the air, and you, anything, you know, you could decide either way, is whether there is something to cast doubt on a claim. Well, then right. there is no claim as to which there is any, as to which expertise has any bearing, right? Because there's always something. You can always find someone who will cite a problem with a study or who will cite a case which casts doubt on another line of cases or, yeah. um, you know, so, so um, I, I think this is a big sickness in society right now. You see this on, in social media, especially where someone, you know, take, 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 take the election results, right? Where the election is, it's perfectly clear what happened, uh, who won. Yeah. There might've been isolated instances of mistakes or fraud. There usually always are. Typically the cases of fraud they find are, are uh, um, seem to be Republicans double voting um, in some cases, either to prove that there's fraud. So it's a weird thing that's happened. Um, but suppose there, there are isolated cases. Someone can always cite these, right? And so the, the claim, this was a free and fair election, the results of which are not, uh, the results of which are, are clear, uh, can be disputed by someone saying, yes, but what about this person who lived here but casted a ballot over there? Or, you know, and this is, and they cite newspaper articles about this and everything else, right? The effect sure. of that, if you're, if you have the wrong kind of skepticism about authority, I think, is, well, this casts down on the whole claim. If there's one of these, there may be a lot of these. So if the claim is it was open and fair and free and there wasn't fraud, well, here's an example where there was fraud. So so therefore, who can say for sure? Right now we're in the kind of Hannah Arendt world where there is no, uh, um, uh, where, where no one can ever know what the truth is. And therefore, right. you know, l- let me just get about my private life and retreat to private which life. Is a, and which is a this. serious danger. Um and a, and a goal that some people have to uh, to push as many people into that zone as possible because it suits their their interests right. for most people to be in that zone. Right. Um, but but yeah the the um, again the kind of I, I think skepticism without an ability to uh, either tell the difference in oneself or other people whether the acts are ultimately in good faith or in bad faith is you know, a bad combo. Like you, uh, <laughs> an inability to ask skeptical questions, that doesn't sound too good. Um, but, but, but the, the, also the inability to stop asking them. Right. Because you know that you've reached the point where beyond that point, it would be the difference between good faith and bad faith. Mm-hmm. Um, that uh, for, for a host of reasons, you've reached the limits of, where now it really is the difference between the person who has the expertise and people who don't, and you're on one side of that line or you're on the other, um, or you've reached the zone where, um, you know, the, some of this is a values question, right? The mask issue. Okay. Well, how, how might we go about, uh, sharing with the public that these are the pros and the cons and that one of the things we're trying to navigate is the, the current supply of masks, who needs them, how they might get distributed both at this time and in some future cycle of time. Like all of those things are complicated, right? Um, but 
the actual respiratory consequences of having this substance in front of your face or not in front of your face, that's not a values question, I think. Um, and so you have to be prepared to say, oh, yeah, that's a thing I don't know. Uh, and that it's okay that I'm getting the knowledge about that from somebody else who does seem to have the knowledge of that. Um, but you have to be reasons- on the, you have to be looking for that because because inevitably the answer you get about about say the mask question is going to be one which is cast within a certain zone of uncertainty. In other words, we think yes. it will do this, and and the question about what you do with that uncertainty is itself a values question. Yes, yeah. and that's why it's especially useful and helpful to have a good conversation with the person who's making the expertise claim about where the like probe those zones and those barriers and limits um and why i think it would have been like in the mask thing it would have been good Uh, maybe some did at the time i haven't gone back and looked but but you know were for example journalists who were covering that story did they ask questions about the recommended mask policy so that its bases were more clear um See, that, my sense okay, is so that, when you, yeah, they often when just cover us, that there's a fact of, they just cover that there is a fact of the dispute. In other words, well, that the dispute is a fact. Some people say this, some people say that. That's what you tend yeah, to see. And that's, and that's not particularly, um, that doesn't sound particularly useful or edifying. Exactly, yeah. Uh, um, and so it would be, uh, you know, I think, uh, and maybe this is, this relates to the legal training point you were making before about equipping people who are going to act as lawyers to be able to frame and pursue a set of questions that are productively skeptical, not um, corrosively skeptical, uh, with someone who's making a, that particular kind of claim. Yeah, for example, like, I've had this guy, you know, I, when pointing out, for example, that um, we really should close the restaurants and bars. Um, and that this is all the more incumbent as uh, as immunity from vaccination gets closer because the costs of, of extreme measures go down when you know there's a limited time horizon and the benefits go way up, especially at a time of accelerating cases. Um, mm. so, so that seems to me uh, correct. But then when you say that and you cite some science, you cite some studies and you say this is, you know, here's what will happen if we do this or what we think will happen. And that's worth it because and you make a values argument about why that's worth it. Um, then someone else may post, yes, but look at what, you know, Gavin Newsom had this indoor uh, um, uh, meeting with like 20 other people at French Laundry, and I don't know how many people were there, but or this other Democratic politician who has said that, you know, Republicans are irresponsible, held a wedding where there were like 30 people inside. And and so, you know, for so, so th- that can be done in bad faith, where the person asserting hypocrisy knows that hypocrisy is not the issue. Right. I mean, right. It's, yeah, so yeah. It's, it's obviously it could be in bad faith. It may just be ignorance and stupidity about what the actual <laughs> fact is. Like, it doesn't matter that people are hypocritical about it. Right. It, in terms of like whether it's a good policy or not, um, the hypocrisy might be evidence of something, maybe the inability of people actually to go follow through with these things. I don't know. But the, that wasn't the point of it. So I'm less concerned about the argument, the fact that the, the person making such an argument than I am about its effect on others. Because people who see that back and forth will see, oh, well, here's an art. You know, this person made a, a passionate argument for closing bars and restaurants, and this other person pointed out that people who support this tend to be hypocritical. Therefore, who's to know? That's the <laughs> right, right, that, where that upshot doesn't relate at all to the two things you just stated. No, it just erodes trust, right? Because because ultimately, someone, as you say, like this involves a complicated mixture of values and expertise. 
and expertise yeah, relies on trust. And so these arguments erode, they're aimed at eroding trust. And when trust is gone, then you have a bunch of people who are in the Hannah Arendt position of saying, well, you know, I can't really participate in the public sphere because everybody's still a liar and whatever. I'm going to go back to private and life. And I think it's, I do think that the person who looks at those two things, uh, someone made an argument and then someone pointed out a hypocrisy um, as, as if the second had much to do with the value of the first um, and says, well, you know, who's to know, right? Yeah. I don't want to relieve that third person, the one who just throws their hands up and says, who's to know, shrug emoji. I don't want to relieve that person of all responsibility. Um, I, I think that that um, sort of, oh, who's to know? Well, well, okay, y- you could know. <laughs> <laughs> and here's how, right? Like maybe maybe let's invest a little bit more into evaluating the the quality of the two things that were said, how they relate to one another, um, and and because there can be a right and a wrong of the matter, where you clarify what the matter is that you're talking about. Of course, now, you're if right. The matter, if the matter is whether or not there is hypocrisy in the world, the second person's observation that this particular person was hypocritical in this particular way—that's a—that is a datum to put in the pile of data about the fact that there's hypocrisy in the world. Okay. Now, it, was that actually what we were trying to figure out? No, it isn't what we were trying to figure out. What we were trying to figure out is the appropriate closure policy for restaurants and bars. Okay. So the, the who's to know thing is a way to, is I think in part a genuine expression of frustration, but it is also in part a, um, a, a, a way to, um, engage in a, a sort of aloof pose that can be self-protective because um, the world is serving up a, an, uh, an exceptionally large measure of bad stuff to us this year, for example. Um, but, but, that, but you're responsible for that. If you decide you want to strike an aloof pose that acts as if nothing is knowable, um, okay, that's a choice you're making, isn't it? Well, it isn't the problem here. I, I think, of course, you're right. But the who's to know issue is it just a social fact. It's, it's a fact about the way people behave in certain social contexts. And so the, the bigger issue for me is not like, are people right to respond that way? Of course, they're not. Um, but, you know, maybe it's part of our makeup because we can't devote infinite attention to every single issue, right? To right. say that, well, there are just some things that like a bunch of people are disagreeing about and I can't be bothered to figure out more. Like that's just maybe the way, the way it is. It's a social fact that people are now doing that about very important issues. Yes. Um, and, but so the more interesting question is how do we overcome that? Mm. And a related question is something about law, right? Because in, in legal argument, I mean, students are trained to come up with arguments on both sides. And, and part of legal training is realizing that there's almost always an argument on on either side. And people, of course, are disagreeing about whether there are standards for legal correctness in any given legal system. I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that there there are in most systems, but there certainly are standards for legal wrongness. Um, but the, so, so it's, it's interesting in our field how our training, in a way, you know, ideally would help people appreciate where there is expertise when to be skeptical of that expertise and what, in what way, because we are, after all, kind of the, like I said, kind of the business end for making decisions in areas of uncertainty and, in, in, you know, right. encapsulating much of expertise. Um, and that makes it more important, not less important, that people find a way to live with some skepticism, but not unbridled cynicism. 
Right, but the training because, is to be an agent of, of of because we're trained to be agents of one side or the other in this kind of adversary model. The yes. the, the job is always to be skeptical of whatever the other side puts up, and that's um, hmm. That's kind of a problem because it encourages this kind of thinking, right? And maybe the case method yeah. does this too because it's not like the scientific method. This is this this paper I think we talked about by Class and Zeiler about um, the endowment effect, which is really yeah. – I, I keep going back to. But um, where like lawyers see cases as arguments in themselves and like I can cite this case and that's a reason to do something in the next case. But there's like there's always a case. There's always a quote. There's always a something. And right. lawyers are trained to latch onto those things kind of in a um, – uh, to use this the strict or loose method of interpretation, either to say, oh, this is the real law because there was this sentence or someone else saying, no, that sentence applied in that scenario, but not this scenario. Like if you can't do that for everyone, like you're not really, you're not a great lawyer. But on the other hand, being a good lawyer may be bad for society. <laughs> That's Well, I, I suppose that could be um, in and, and maybe for the very same reason that, you know, even water can be a poison. Uh, under the right circumstances. Um, so I think a real value of uh, an adversary approach uh, to getting to something, getting to an answer, getting to an evaluation, is because oftentimes motivated reasoning is such that the it really can be too difficult for a person with a particular outlook or perspective to to come up with um the the what would turn out to be in that moment important and valuable critiques or important and valuable uh caveats to what they're saying that it really does take uh the presence of another person who's uh, either happens to hold or is committed to for the purposes of structure maintaining or pursuing the opposite point of view like to get those other things on the table, right? Yeah. So uh, that can that really is a thing that's true about human beings. Um, so you've got uh, to to use the classic example of this that that I think is a beautiful illustration. Um, you know that phrase, "the devil's advocate," uh, comes from a particular practice in the Roman Catholic uh, Church, in, specifically with respect to the uh, the canonization of saints. The, the determination that a person is in fact, or was in fact a saint. I'm, I'm using the phrase in fact there, interestingly, I admit. Um, but this process, um, there was uh, the person who was advocating in favor of uh, the canonization of the person. I think I'm using the right word. Um, is it beatification? There's was, also beatification. I don't know what that yeah, is. Yeah, and I think that's a higher status. I'm not sure. In any event, hmm. the, the person arguing in favor of the sainthood of the potential candidate. That person was called the promoter of the cause. The person arguing very strenuously for the rejection of the saintliness of the candidate, uh, colloquially known as the devil's advocate, which is where that phrase comes from, um, was is known as the promoter of the faith. And it is th these are very telling labels, I think right? The, the cause is one thing, the underlying faith is another thing. And that, it, that the, in the opposition of them, you get to the best answer. Like, I think there's, that's something really, that captures something quite true about humans. 
that you need the person. It's not enough to say to the promoter of the cause, well, just be sure you take and keep in mind all the good counter arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's not, that's not, that might not be robust enough. That's where, to where really ge- in situations where you think fact or reason will be undersupplied, you want to do things that increase the supply of those things, right? And maybe the adversary system is a way of creating undersupplied facts or reason. Maybe in a situation where like nobody really wants to say anything bad about this person. Can you imagine doing yeah. this in like, like tenure votes or like should there be a devil's advocate for tenure or for hiring committees at law schools um, or for maybe uh, people making partner at law firms? I mean, to use our own right particular field is it? i mean and, and it's an interesting question because I, I i think and i think we're we're systematically likely to undervalue that uh devil's advocate role be, precisely because of motivated reasoning and its pervasiveness mm-hmm. yeah i i yeah I, I i don't know um because you know this the this procedure serves the purpose of supplying what otherwise might not be supplied Right, a certain set of facts, certain set of reasons that people may either not be motivated to invest in discovering, or that they will withhold for, um, for reasons of status or whatever. But also the very process of, of adversariousness, adversarialness, adversary, mm-hmm. adverseness, yes. adversity, yeah, unlocks all kinds of other problems that human beings have. Right. This is true. Right. This be- is becoming, the, this... be- yeah, becoming welded to a particular set of beliefs because you're the one arguing for them. Right. This is the thicket we're stuck in. Yes. Um, this, these are the scratches that we're getting from all these thorns. Um, it's true. <laughs> I don't deny it. Um, all right. So hard to know whether it would be better in certain contexts not to embark on that adversary approach, but rather to use a more sort of an inquisitorial approach that, that where there is a sort of a more directive figure who's going to reach a conclusion and the process that person uses along the way is the, is simply the process that, that um, is as well calibrated to yield a quality answer as they can make it. I think that's a show. Okay. I think that's. I, I think. I think what should come, what comes out of this is that we should set up a Patreon, Joe, to fund our joint expedition to K two base camp, mm. where we will make some recordings in a low oxygen environment. I support that. Uh, I do want to make a friendly amendment. Okay. Or I do want to make. I want to add to the specification. Okay. That the, it not only be K2, base camp, low oxygen, I also want there to be blue cheese and olives when we get there. That could be arranged. That, that's totally possible. I thought you were going to demand something which was impossible, therefore subverting the very idea of the expedition. No, as you know, I am not a subverter. I'm a door closer. Right. Uh, but I'm not a door destroyer. I'm not a subverter. Interestingly enough, if you destroy the door, you can just walk right on through. Yes, is re- is the reason not to be a door destroyer. Right. You like to um, close and padlock that bad boy. Don't destroy it. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. You need that you need that thing intact. All right. So, well, yes. Speaking of uh, closing doors, I'm going to hit stop. <laughs>